Well, welcome once again, Grace Bible Church. My name is Jacob Hatfield. I'm the guy who puts the music stands down. <laughs> I just want you to be able to see me. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to do that? Ugh. Anyways, good morning. Thank you for being here. It's such a joy to worship together with you. Hear you singing robustly behind me. That's why I sit in the front, because I love to just hear the, the wave of singing. I love it. Well, we are working our way through the Psalms for the summer, and we started with Psalm 12 a few weeks ago, and this morning brings us to Psalm chapter 14. So we are looking at Psalm chapter 14 this morning, and the Psalm opens with this horribly sobering statement the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I don't know if you've taken any time to think about what that means, but in our context in these days, a fool is someone who has almost been reduced to some kind of comic thing, a jester, someone who makes people laugh, an entertainer. But in the context of Psalm 14, it's much more serious than that. There's nothing silly or funny about what's going on. David is continuing his meditation, his thinking on the wickedness around him. This started in Psalm 9. So when we get Psalm 9, 10, all the way through 14, there is a lot of repeat theme because David is considering the world around him. He's considering what's going on with the wickedness and with the betrayal and with the injustice, and he's looking at this and going, what is going on? And this morning in Psalm 14 is a continuation of that. We'll turn the corner next week when we come to Psalm 15. But for today, David is continuing his thoughts, his reasoning, his thinking about why are things the way they are. And if you've ever had a thought like that, then I'm glad you are here because we're going to see some sense of this this morning. And my desire is that the Word of God would so inform our thinking, our feeling, our action, that we would be able to leave here today in total agreement with what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, that the Word of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, there's this... uh, two paths kind of a thing going on in the Psalms. This was laid out for us in Psalm 1 and 2, where there is a path that the righteous follow in obedience to God and His will, and there is a path that the wicked follow in defiance of God, in ignorance of His will. And my prayer is that the Word of God would make all of us who are simple in many ways, that it would make us wise so that we understand what the will of the Lord is and how to put that into practice in our lives. So I invite you to open your Bibles. About the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms, and we are going to read Psalm chapter 14 as we begin this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I invite you to listen or follow along in your own Bible. Psalm chapter 14. To the choir master, the Psalm of David... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
They have no knowledge. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Pray with me as we begin. Father, I thank you that we can come to you even though none of us is perfect, even though none of us have met the requirement of your law. Yet we come and we make mention not of our own righteousness, but that of Jesus Christ, who gives us access to you, who mediates grace and mercy, which we all need. And I praise you, Lord, that in your wisdom you have set things up in such a way that we can gain understanding from your word. (laughs) This is not like any other book, your scriptures. It is unique. It is inspired. It is perfect. It is without error. And it is for our good. So this morning, as we look at a tough text and we see some really serious things, I pray that you would give us understanding. Open the eyes of our heart that we would see what your word says. Give us the strength by your spirit to obey your word, to walk worthy, and we ask for your help. Thank you for enlivening our hearts through worship. Thank you for drawing out our affections. And now as we turn to your word, Lord, give us eyes to see and help us in the understanding. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. My summary of Psalm 14, the thesis statement is this, the rejection of God produces a life of corrupt futility. The rejection of God produces a life of corrupt futility. Now the first thing we need to do when we come to this psalm is to not only identify but to define what a fool is. Like I said, you might have a concept in your mind of someone who is foolish, maybe built on just what's going on around us, maybe built on your experience, but we want to look to the Word of God and try to determine what is David talking about here. It goes much deeper than just a silliness or a lack of information. The fool that we encounter here at the beginning of chapter 14 is someone who has been led astray. It's someone who has been deceived with wrong information. And they have been led away by this idea that there is no limit to their own personal power or control in their life. That's really what's at the root of this statement. When the fool says in his heart, there's no God, what he means is that there's no God that can tell me what to do. There's no God that can bring me underneath his authority and his overview and his sovereignty. I am the God. That's what's happening. That's what a fool says. There is no limit to the personal power and control. He's placed himself at the center of all moral and ethical decision-making Part of the rejection of God is that mankind wants to place himself in the position of deciding what is true, what is right, and what is good. And outside of the standard of the scriptures, 
Mankind is free to do that. But God has revealed to us a standard. He has told us what is true, what is right, and what is good. And the rejection of that standard is foolishness, according to the Word of God. The corrupt actions that follow this awful statement in, in verse 1 are not the result of simple ignorance. It is not just that somebody doesn't know better. Well, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to derive my own way of living or my own way of thinking. It is a willful, purposeful rejection of the law of God and an attempt to live out this total autonomy. Autonomy is just a word for don't tell me what to do. That's Jacob's translation. So the fool says in his heart, there's no standard, there's no God, I'm going to do what I want, and the outworking of that is everything that we see following in this psalm. He is actively and purposefully living out this conviction that God has no place, no right, and no authority in the human life. It's really frightening. This is very, very serious for many reasons, but mainly because this is not something that was just back in ancient Israel. This is a mindset that is pervasive everywhere in our culture. Don't tell me what to do. I make up my mind. I make up my rules. I decide what's truth. And that is so dangerous. To be foolish in this context is not just uninformed stupidity, but rather a moral decision for evil which then in the context of the Psalms, we can put this on par with the wicked. We've, we've seen the righteous and the wicked. We've seen this all the way through. And so a fool is not just someone who kind of stumbles over himself and, oh, that was foolish. This is a willful disobedience to God. So my definition, what is a fool? We're going to see this a few times. A fool is one who knows better, yet willfully lives in open, defiant disobedience to the will of God. A fool is someone who knows better. They know the truth. But they live in open, willful defiance to the will of God. Just let that set for a second. Using our definition, like I said, the foolish man now can be equated to the wicked because of their rejection of God. It's no small thing to be called a fool and it's no small thing to act like a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and I would add, only a fool would say in his heart, there is no God. The evidence for God is everywhere around us. Even those who don't accept the authority of God and his word have a hard time explaining the way things are apart from some kind of design element, some kind of intentionality. You might know this, but I have dealt and continue to deal with dozens of medical professionals. People who are the best in their field. The surgeon who did my kidney transplant two years ago is considered the top kidney surgeon in Minnesota. He started the program at the U of M. These people are highly intelligent, educated, trained, and experienced, and yet they can look at the unbelievable anatomy of the human body and come away and say, there's no God. This is all an accident. 
How does that happen? I don't think this is the primary point of this text. I'm just using this as an illustration for us. That the evidence for God is everywhere around us. And only someone who understands that and says, nope, nope, I'm not going to agree with that. I'm not going to put myself under that. I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. That is a fool in every sense of the definition. When we come to the New Testament, the definition of a fool is very similar. Someone who knows better, yet chooses to reject what they know in favor of their own selfish desires. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Paul gives us a definition for what a fool is, and it very closely matches what David is driving at here in Psalm 14. So follow along Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18, or you can just listen if you'd rather just listen. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Now listen for some key phrases, and I'll kind of emphasize as I uh, read through this, but listen for the similarities between Psalm chapter 14 and this section of Romans 1. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're not ignorant of the truth. They know the truth, but they are willfully saying, nope, I'm not going to believe that. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 21, for although they know God... Okay, this isn't blatant ignorance. Although they know God, they do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Trading the glory of God for lesser things, as the passage goes on. So what's the definition of a fool? Someone who knows God, knows the demands of God, knows the requirement and says, nope, I'm not subjecting myself to that. According to the Apostle Paul, a fool is one who knows and recognizes God's place of authority as creator and willfully and knowingly goes against that. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 14 tells us that this destructive pattern begins in the heart and find its, finds its working out in a person's life. This isn't just actions. <clears throat> this isn't just someone kind of slipped up in their acting and uh, their living and, and made a mistake. This is rooted in the heart of a person, which again is just should be very, very sobering for us. Notice verse 1 says, now back to Psalm 14, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what follows then are the attitudes and the thinking that are produced by this. Now David doesn't delineate all of the, uh, look at verse 1. He says they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. He doesn't delineate what all of those things are. He's not a list maker like the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to borrow a list from Paul. We're going we're gonna to see in the same chapter, Romans chapter 1, Paul goes on and <clears throat> he says, okay, the fool rejects the knowledge of God. 
He refuses to submit himself to that. And therefore, here is what their life looks like. So I think we can match this up really closely with Psalm chapter 14. Romans 1.28, just listen to this. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they would be the fools. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give hearty approval to those who practice them. These are just a section, a sample of the abominable deeds that the fool works out in his life because of his rejection of God. When we go back to Psalm 14, we can see, I hope you can see, that David is making a contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, something that started back in the beginning of the book. So when he says at the end of the verse 1 here that there is none who do good, there is none who seek after God, he means that in the camp of the wicked, among the fools, there is no one who seeks after God or his law. When we close, I'm going to take us back to the New Testament and show you that way that Paul universally applies this text to all of mankind. But in our context, David is making this division, this uh, separation, as it were. Now, at the beginning of verse 2, we see something called an idiom, a Hebrew idiom, which is just a way to express something without saying it exactly. So you should be able to read this and kind of get what he's saying, even though it's not explicit. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. When it says in verse 2 that God looks down from heaven on the children of men, we should see that David is trying to create this space, this separation between where God dwells in the heavens, high above, lifted up, and this down here realm where the sinful, wicked dwell and do all of their things. Mankind may think that he has accomplished much. We may start to think that our own ability, our own accomplishments are worth noting. And yet God has to bend over, as it were, to see what's going on with the little ants that he's created. And I wonder if that language sounds a little bit familiar to you. It should. If you know the Old Testament, you know that in Genesis 11, there's something called the Tower of Babel. Do you remember this? Now what the Tower of Babel was, was all of mankind had united together and said, you know what, if we just put our heads together, I bet we can build a city so great and a tower so high that it will reach to heaven. And in their pride and in their boastfulness, they had rejected what God had commanded. And they said, no, we're going to gather together. We're going to make ourselves strong and unite. This was in opposition to what God had said. So 
In Genesis chapter 11, just read, you don't have to turn here. Genesis 11, 4, we read this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over all the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and to see the tower that the children of man had built. See the similarities? Boasting, tower, God coming down, children of men, all that stuff. It's almost like the Bible is united in its theme. I hope that the irony is not lost on you here. Okay? Mankind makes his plans. He makes his boast. He operates with all of the ingenuity and the wisdom that he can possess. And God, by comparison, is like, what's going on down there? I can't see it. It's not big enough for me to see. Now, don't get hung up on this language. David is not communicating, and Genesis 11 is not saying that God is unaware of what's going on on earth, and occasionally he has to get his telescope out and kind of look down there and be like, ooh, I didn't see that one coming. Look what's going on down there. That is not the picture here. It is an illustration that the magnificence of man, if you can call it that, is so puny that God is seen as having to stoop down just to see what's going on. Okay, God is continually and intimately involved in his creation. This is not an ignorance on God's part. It is meant to help us see something. It's meant to help us see that we're really not all that great. Our accomplishments really aren't that big. Compared to God, it's actually really quite pointless. However, this is what foolish people do. So look at verse 2 again. It says, God bends down. What is he bending down to see? He's bending down to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. That word that you see there, understand, should be translated, if there's any who act wisely. Is there anyone who has not completely lost their mind? Is there anyone who has not given in to their depravity? Is there anyone who is going to seek after God? And the answer is that in the camp of the wicked, no, there's not. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. There is none, not even one. (laughs) Notice this inclusiveness that they have all turned aside, that together they have become corrupt or worthless. The word corrupt, I thought this was really interesting, is an Arabic word, the same word for spoiled milk. It's gone past its usefulness. Okay, It's as if these wicked, foolish people have so long pursued selfishness, they have so long pursued their own agenda and the rejection of God that they have gone past their expiration date, as it were, and are spoiled, good for nothing. What do you do with spoiled milk? You don't drink it, unless you're weird. You throw it out. It's gone. It's beyond usefulness. That's the word. It's spoiled. The language in verse 3 here, this This turning aside. Think of this in Isaiah 53. When uh, the 
prophet is writing about the, the sinfulness of man, really the need for a Savior. What does he say there in Isaiah 53? We all, like sheep, have turned aside. We have gone our own way. And the Lord laid the consequence of that decision, the punishment for that, on Jesus. There's a blessedness to following the Lord, and there is a severe consequence for turning aside. David now asks this question in verse 4. Have they no knowledge? Don't they know? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. In other words, David's saying, don't they know what's going to happen if this continues? If they continue to regularly and willfully reject the Lord. I know what it says, I just don't want to do it. David says, don't they know what's going to happen? They're going to incur judgment. God does not tolerate evil forever. And David says, don't they know? And the terrifying answer is yes. They do know. We said earlier in our definition of a fool that a fool is one who knows better yet willfully goes against the command of God. David looks at this and says, what is wrong with you? Don't you know what's going to happen if you don't repent? turn from your sin, come back to God. The fact that these fools devour people, so notice the language that he uses here, they devour the Lord's people like they eat bread, means that they take advantage of God's people for the benefit of themselves. Okay, That's what he means when he's using this eating the bread language. Now we eat bread for two reasons. Maybe you have a lot more, that's between you and God. There's two reasons, okay? We eat it for sustenance, for life, and we do it because we enjoy it. David is saying that these people take advantage of God's people for their own benefit, and they do it because they like it and because they benefit from it. The fact that they don't call upon the Lord means that they perceive no need for God. They have no fear of God, therefore why would you call on someone you don't think you need? You don't call up an HVAC guy when your air conditioning's working perfectly. There's no need for him. These wicked, foolish people have no perceived need of God. Therefore, why would they call upon God? That'd be weird. But this kind of living, this kind of thinking, this kind of acting puts them in a very, very terrible, dangerous place. Verse 5, there, let me just stop real quick. Where is there? It is the position of rejecting God and calling your own shots. Okay? There, they are in great terror for the God, the Lord, is with the generation of the righteous. If there was ever a motivation for those who live in the folly of wickedness to turn from that and to embrace the love and the care and the protection of God, this would be it. He says God is with the generation of the righteous. Implication, he is not with the generation of the wicked. And Israel should know by now that when God engages in a conflict, he never loses 
Think about all the times that these nations around Israel had come up and tried to overtake them, tried to destroy them, tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. God says, nope, it's my people. To have the Lord on your side is to have his power, his blessing, his face towards you. And David says, they're in a really bad spot, these foolish, wicked, because God is not with them. Rather, he is against them. The face of the Lord is against the wicked. Psalm 7, Peter quotes that in the New Testament. I just, I couldn't help but think, what more do they need? What more motivation than to know that God is against you? The foolish do not stand a chance against the Lord, yet they continue to throw off his law, to disregard his commandments. And this is the very thing that we saw at the beginning of the book of Psalms. The, the first two chapters set the tone for the entire rest of the book. And in chapter 2 we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But the response of God, we see he who sits in the heavens laughs. God is not thrown off by this kind of behavior. Does he approve of it? No. But does it wreck his day? No. God is not thrown off by folly. He is not thrown off by wickedness. When they plot and scheme and rage against him, he is calm, seated on his throne, waiting for the right time to either extend grace and mercy and salvation or extend his rod of judgment. Those are the only two responses of God to this kind of behavior. Either grace, salvation, hope, or judgment, destruction. And I just have to say here, if you or someone you know is under the impression that you can live your life however you want, no regard for God, and then say, well, at the last, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll confess my sin, I'll come to God, and I'll get all the benefits of God at that time. That's spiritual suicide for two reasons. Salvation is not a work that you do. You don't decide when to step into the grace of God. God does. And no one knows when your last day will be. So to live your life in this ongoing rejection of the will of God, to say, yeah, I know what it says, but I'm gonna, I'll do that later. Let me have some fun. Come on. Why are you being such a tightwad? Just let me do what I want to do. And when the time comes, I'll call upon God. Oh, friends, that is no way to live. That is death. And I think part of David's motivation in revealing all of these things is to say, look, don't you know? Don't you know what the end of this is? Don't you know where this road leads that you're walking on? Look, look, it's death and it's destruction. 
Don't wait to make things right with God. Do not assume that you have another day to repent, to clear things up. Do it now. Don't wait. There's no guarantee you are going to leave this parking lot this morning. Make it right with God. Stop rejecting his law. Receive the gift of grace and come to him. Now verse 6 shows us that the foolish ones look at the plans of the poor and mock them. They shame the less fortunate for their pitiful little attempt to be like the big guys. You see that verse 6 of chapter 14? You would shame the plans of the poor. But then David includes this really, really important detail. But the Lord is his refuge. Isn't that great? We've seen all the way along now in the Psalms that the Lord is with those who are contrite and humble in spirit. And that's exactly what he's saying here. The Lord is the protection, the strength, and the power of the poor. So the wicked can look at them and say, ha, nice try, maybe he'll do better later. But the poor says, that's fine. Go ahead and laugh. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is the one that I take strength in. And the Lord will stand for me. Now you might read this last verse, verse 7, and think, this sounds a little out of place. It kind of seems like there was this kind of this flow of thought and then boom, it, it takes a different turn. Look at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Now almost everyone that I read, at least, agrees that Psalm 7 was probably added to the original six verses when Israel was coming back from exile from Babylon. No longer did they have the present reality of temple worship, of gathering with the people of God. They had been scattered and they were coming back. And as they come back, as they sing the songs of ascent, which are in the 120s and 30s of the Psalms, they cry out to God and say, oh, let salvation come from Zion. Let the fortunes that we once had that God has promised be restored to us. We've been in exile for so long. And you know what? God did restore the fortunes, didn't he? And it came through the person of Jesus Christ. You can see this if you want to look at Psalm 126. I'm not going to read this for you. This is as Israel is coming back and up to the Mount Zion. They sing this song and they say many of the same things. Oh God, restore to us what was ours. They are hoping in a future deliverance from Zion. And I'm here to say that Jesus Christ is that deliverance from Zion. That he restores the fortunes of God's people. The blessing that was taken away for a time is back through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to close our time by taking a quick look back at the context and I'm going to take us to the New Testament and show you something that's really encouraging and challenging for us. So in the context of Psalm 14, David is making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, the foolish and the wise. We get that, right? We have that category in our mind. When the nation within the nation of Israel, there were both 
There was both the wise and the foolish, just as there is among our day. And the warning here in Psalm 14 is for those who think themselves to be wise but are actually fools or the people who follow after those kinds of folks would wake up and pay attention and recognize that the Lord does not honor this kind of haughty, boastful arrogance but is with the generation of the righteous. When we come to the New Testament, we see Paul specifically apply this text universally, okay? It's not just anymore that there's a righteous people and we can kind of look over at the icky, wicked, foolish people and say, huh, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not over there. I'm sure glad I'm in the camp of the righteous. Nope. Nope. In Romans chapter 3, Paul universally applies this text. Listen to this. Verse 9 of Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that everyone, both Jew and Greek, are under sin, as it is written. And now he quotes from Psalm 14, which we just heard. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Everyone has turned aside and they have become worthless. Verse 23, he sums it up. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is not just a division that helps us to think through things and know what we're dealing with. This psalm and what Paul does with it in Romans chapter 3 is a universal application to say that every one of us has broken the commandment of God, we have not lived up to His standard, and we stand condemned in our sin. That's a pretty serious problem. This is no longer just making a differentiation. This is no longer just us saying, whew, I'm so glad I'm not wicked. Yes, you are. And yes, I am. Now the hope for this is that we do not have what we need to satisfy God, but Jesus Christ does. We are all totally insufficient in ourselves and must rely upon the righteousness of Jesus received at the moment of salvation to cover us and to make us right with God. It's very, very easy to point the finger at those around us and to say, "Woo! I'm glad I'm not as bad as them. And I think you can't read this psalm. We can't read what Paul says and Ignore the fact that we are all them (laughs) in some ways. We all sin. We all fall short of God's standard. We all stand in a great need of a Savior. So when you are tempted, and I say when, not if, because this happens every day. When we are tempted to kind of elevate ourselves just a little bit and just even internally think, as we see the, the horrible wickedness around us to think, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not over there. Now there's a place to rejoice in the salvation of God, but be very careful that you do not place yourself in a position of self-righteousness, of thinking that you are superior to someone else because you can point out their sin pretty easy. When you are tempted... 
with feelings of self-righteousness, remember this psalm. Remember that there is no one apart from Christ who does good. There is no one righteous. We all have the same need, brothers and sisters. And that is the righteousness of Jesus given to us through the grace of God. So I want you to remember this psalm. Don't elevate yourself into thinking that you are better than anyone else. We are all sinful. And I want you to remember the words of Philip P. Bliss. He made a really good point. He says, Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Don't ever let yourself slip into this self-righteous thinking that you are better than anyone. We are all at the foot of the cross, vile. But Jesus Christ, through the shedding of his blood, will cleanse you from that sin. Isn't that great? Isn't that about the best news you could hear on Father's Day? Amen. Let's pray as we close. Father in heaven, thank you that our sin as we sang this this morning, our sin, oh, the bliss of this thought, our sin, not just part of it, but every sin was nailed to the cross and the weight of that is removed from our shoulders if we will trust in Jesus and turn away from our self-reliance. God, do not let us become fools. We know your standard. We know your law through the written word of God. Do not let us stiff arm that. But impress upon us the importance of following you in obedience. Oh, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for this word. Apply it now, Father, and keep us from self-righteousness. Help us to understand that we all are in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. Would we take full advantage of the offer of grace? And as we come now to your table, Lord, to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done, make this a time of remembrance, a time of reflection, confession of sin for those who know you. Would we remember and declare the death of our Lord? We pray this in his name. Amen.